Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good evening. Well, I would have lost the bet. I was betting about half of you would show up tonight and maybe wishing half of you would show up tonight. Uh, In our discussion about sexuality, uh, have talked to the Lord quite a bit about this night, that he'll protect it and uh, make it useful. It's a great conversation to have. Uh, But as I've heard through text messages and emails all week, um, a lot of us didn't grow up in churches that had these conversations. And I don't say that to make you think that this congregation is better than others. I just think in our culture today, it's so uh, pervasive that I'm glad we're doing this. As uncomfortable as it may be at times, uh, for me in particular, uh, I, I'm just grateful to have these conversations. And uh, just a little anecdote. I was sitting home on Monday night, and Braden was sitting next to me on his iPad, and he was playing a little a game, and I asked him what he was doing. And I saw that he had the podcast uh, app open on his iPad. And I thought, oh my. And I said, when did you open that? And he said, well... Mom told me I couldn't listen to the sermon, but I wanted to see if it came on my, my iPad. So I was like, okay, delete. And uh, he and I had a fourth grade level conversation, which I was far more adept at than the one we had Sunday. So it was really good. Well, you guys know the routine. Uh, if you're visiting tonight, welcome to Christ Church. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of a Q&A based on questions we've received from people through texts and emails uh, since Sunday, during Sunday service. And leading up to this point, you are still available to text. Uh, Brad is handling all those. He'll send them up. If you ask a question that he knows we're going to address currently, uh, then we will, uh, he'll let you know that in a response to the text saying that's on our agenda. If not, we'll try to work everything together the best we can tonight. But you guys know the routine. If you've been here before, stand up. Become comfortable with who you're around. Introduce yourself to someone tonight you may never have met before. All right. Thank you. I always like that on Wednesday night, the conversations go longer than Sunday mornings. Hey, let's pray. It'd be the appropriate thing to do, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin tonight. And God, thank you for your honesty, for uh, your vulnerability in sending Jesus to us. God, we realize love is a complicated thing that we learn each and every day how to dispense and how to receive. And you are our example. In your purity and honesty and holiness, you have presented us so many blessings. Tonight, as we talk about uh, something that was given as a gift and is often used uh, to hurt us and harm us and take away all the advantages that you provided, uh, I pray that in our discussion, you'll bless these uh, gentlemen uh, who join me on stage. I pray that you'll allow the words and thoughts uh, as scriptures we use and thoughts we share Uh, would be an encouragement and a blessing that we might answer questions that are posed in people's hearts well, and we might honor you while doing it. And so uh, we give ourselves to you, asking you to guide us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you don't know, to my far left is Michael DeFazio. Michael is a professor at Ozark Christian College. He teaches New Testament and hermeneutics according to the webpage. And uh, he's a good, smart guy who loves the Word of God and glad he's here. Peter Buckland. Uh, teaches Christian education and family life ministry at Ozark Christian College. And Peter, how many years have you been there? 17. 17 years, and he's been an elder here, 13 or 14, correct? 
And uh, I lean on Peter for many, many things, and I'm very grateful to work uh, with him uh, as part of the leadership here at the church. And then directly to my left is Chad Ragsdale, who is the assistant academic dean, which means he does all the work, and then the academic dean signs off on it. And he's a very bright guy, teaches Bible uh, at Ozark as well, one of their professors. So he wears two hats uh, at the college, and just grateful to have these guys here. And so we're going to begin. I'm going to throw this question out to Michael and Chad, and they can... uh, Excuse me. We tried to, to build these questions together to the best of our ability. So we're going to talk about marriage as the context Sunday, if you're with us. There's a context and a purpose for our sexuality as defined by God. And so the first question I ask, and Michael, I'm just going to throw it your way, and then we'll trade off on these. What constitutes marriage? And I'm going to ask these together. What constitutes marriage? Is it a legal document that joins people together? Is there a ritual that needs to happen for two to be considered one? And why does a written bond and a public ritual mean joined as one, but two people committed to each other makes that promise not effective? So what is the biblical worldview on marriage? Yeah, there's, there's a lot in those questions. Um, and so I'll just kind of um, try to paint a picture and then, Chad, uh, you know, fill, the, fill it in with any details. Um, to, to try to be specific and simple with it, marriage is a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. Um, covenantal uh, speaks to a number of facets of that relationship. It is um, forever. It is a relationship that you freely enter into, that you commit to this other person, um, that one person, that if you're a man, that one woman, if you're a woman, that one woman, and you are committed to them uh, for the rest of your lives. You're committed to them totally. You're committed to them exclusively. That's marriage. Um, and we could build out a few of those details, but the main point I want to make, in addition to just sort of giving a simple, simple as possible definition, is when it comes to some of these questions, and I'm not reading any sort of, I don't want to read any negativity into the asking, askers of those specific questions um, because I don't know the tone in which they were asked. But I want to say that we need to be careful asking questions like, well, do I have to do this for it to be a marriage? Do I have to do this? And a lot of times in my ministry, that's whenever I got questions like this, it was, well, we've been living together for a while. So do we have to go through the public ceremony just for the sake of it? And what I want to say is that that kind of an attitude is, is never going to get us the clearest picture of what Jesus wants from us, of what God wants from us. That whenever Jesus was asked a question that came from that kind of a mentality, well, you know, what do I have to do to be okay? Or what do I have to do for this to count? He always flipped a script. And his question instead that we should be asking was, well, what's God's ideal for this? And how can we step into that? And there's a different framing of the question. So, for instance, with a specific one on there, like, do we have to have a legal ceremony? Well, I could argue that, I could argue you in in, in terms of the question, do I have to do this, and say, yes, you do for it to be marriage. Because biblically, the covenantal relationship of marriage is always legally, officially recognized. It is always recognized by the community as being an official relationship that we all are aware of and that you commit to one another in our sight and therefore in God's sight to uh, engage in that relationship. But again, the question is being asked wrongly. If the proper question is, why would, legal, why would a legal ceremony be a part of marriage? The answer becomes the same thing, but in a different key or a different tone. The reason why legality is important is because standing up in front of, another, uh, in front of a community of people, whether it's a large community or small community, and officially committing myself to this covenant for my sake with Beth, and, uh, and then going through the official process of signing these documents, all of this expresses the exclusivity and the um, unbreakability of the marriage bond. So 
big picture, I think we should be asking, what's God's ideal for marriage? And then, so what, what has to come underneath that or what comes underneath that? And when we do that, some of these questions about, does it need to be a legally sanctioned relationship? The answer becomes, well, yes, but it becomes so in the right way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I always get nervous when questions begin like, do I have to, you know? Um, to me, just, you know, there, there's, there's something to address right there, you know? Like I hear a similar question, posed a lot of times about baptism. Mm-hmm. Well, do I have to? Wrong well, question. Yeah. But it's, it's a celebration. It's a get to, you know, it's, it's, you know, so maybe just framing it up differently. I, the series about worldview, and I would say that at the most foundational level, the difference that exists between the biblical worldview of marriage and the way that the world has come to see marriage, it wasn't always this way, but the way that we've come to see marriage is exactly the point that Michael made, which is the point about covenant. That is, at the foundational level, the primary difference. Because the cultural assumption now is that marriage is a contractual relationship. Um, And contractual relationships are, uh, by their very nature, a voluntary negotiated arrangement. And so when you go to Walmart, you are entering into a contractual relationship with Walmart. They have something that you want, you have something that they want, and so as long as they have the gallon of milk and you have the money to pay for the gallon of milk, the contractual relationship works. So you're not entering into a covenant with Walmart. It's a voluntary transaction, okay? And a lot of people bring that sort of mindset into the marriage relationship, that a marriage is a contractual relationship. As long as you meet your end of the deal and I meet my end of the deal, then we can live in happy harmony with each other. And sex actually becomes a part of that contractual relationship. So sex, we come to see sex really in a very self-serving way within a contractual relationship. So I get sexual satisfaction from this relationship you get sexual satisfaction from this relationship. We see, the, 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 we see sex as being a part of that contractual arrangement rather than being an expression of our covenantal loyalty to each other. And marriages will inevitably start to unravel and fall apart at the moment where I perceive that you aren't living up to your end of this arrangement. Um, and there's any number of ways that we begin to perceive that happening. Maybe the house isn't being picked up, or maybe you're, you know, maybe you're just always on my case about something, or maybe sexually we're not in the same place that we used to be 10 years from, uh, ago. And so there's all sorts of ways that I begin to see that you're not living up to your end of the bargain, or maybe you see I'm not living up to my... And so then the relationship is ended because the con- contract has been broken. This was never certainly the biblical understanding of marriage. Marriage is a deeply binding covenantal relationship where in a covenant, it's not a contract. A contract is 50-50. A covenant is when I give myself wholly to you and you give yourself wholly to me. Just as, there's a reason why in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul was, was searching for Um, You might look this up and read it later. Many of you know this text. But when Paul was searching for a way to describe marriage, he pointed to the relationship between Christ and his church. 
because marriage is, your, your marriage is a walking testimony of the covenantal relationship that Christ has with his church. Christ gave himself up completely for his church. The church gives herself up completely for Christ. And in the same way, the husband and the wife have this covenantal relationship. Our covenantal relationships are an evangelistic testimony to the world about what Christ has done for this. Have you ever thought about that? Now, on, very quickly, the second point is, well, what... Is there any sort of solemnizing ceremony or ritual that, that needs to take place for a marriage to actually happen? Um, and if you think about it, we always ritualize things that are important to us, don't we? Um, we, don't, we don't do it begrudgingly. Today is my son's 10th birthday. So I don't begrudgingly celebrate his 10th birthday through a ritual, through a celebration, through a party. I do that because he's awesome and I love my son. And we ritualize those things that are important to us. And, and in a covenantal ceremony, we, we don't have any examples of private, personal, covenantal ceremonies. Covenantal ceremonies were always public, and they were always celebrated. Um, and, and so you solemnize or you, you ritualize those things that are important. You testify to it, to your community. You testify to this relationship to your God. The legal aspect is really secondary to the, the solemn or the sacred aspect. I would always tell couples that I'm marrying, okay? I'd always tell them, I am not a prop on this stage, okay? I would be a little bit more loving than that. But I would essentially say, I'm not a prop on the stage. Culture has turned the preacher into a prop on the stage. But I always saw my duty in marrying a couple as to ask for God's blessing upon this covenantal union. Um, and to, to celebrate this covenantal union with, um, with the community. Things that are important, we always celebrate through ritual and through... I, I read this great quote on Twitter. Twitter is full of a lot of not-so-great quotes, but I read this great quote on Twitter recently, like this week, um, from, uh, from a guy I really respect. He said, you know, a lot, of or a lot of people in the world think that Christians are against sex, uh, which couldn't be further from the truth. Christians are not against sex. Christians simply recognize the sacredness of sex. And we also recognize the sacredness of marriage. And those things that are sacred, you celebrate, but you also treat very carefully as well. And just one more point, if I may. You realize Jesus himself pointed to the importance of the legality of marriage. When Jesus was having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus actually says, you've been married several times, and the man that you are currently with, you are not married to. So Jesus himself recognizes the difference there between something that has been publicly solemnized, something that has publicly been uh, ordained, and something that hasn't. And so Jesus recognizes the difference as well. Um, subsequent to Michael and Chad's um comments is a question that came in and asked about the issue of, uh, I was told the Bible does not specifically prohibit sex between single adults. Where do they get this interpretation? And I'm not, I don't mean this to be snarky, but it's not in the Bible. The definition of adultery and fornication is defined by marriage. It's a violation of that. Now, we've all lived in the Bible college world, and I'm assuming you've all had the conversations I've had with students who come in and said, if we just love each other, and that's all that matters, we're married in the eyes of God. Not if you look at the definition of marriage as 
as performed throughout all of Scripture. It was a communal public event. It wasn't a private act between two people in solitude. Mm -hmm. It really was. The, the parents had to give away. There was a dowry. There was a celebration. Look how Jesus illustrated his return for us with a marriage ceremony where the groom goes to the bride's home and takes her from her parents and to his house. It's not a private thing. Uh, well, let, let me give you just a brief illustration of this, too. You know, and this is going to connect to other things other than sex and marriage, but y y I hear this all the time, and it drives me insane. Um, I hear this all the time, that I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And what people, I think, mean by that is, I want to have spiritual feelings, I want to pursue God, I want to be spiritual in a very vague sense, but I'm just not into the church, I'm not into religion, I'm not in into institutional religion. And the way that I've come to think about it is this. Um, if you think about a balloon, um, a balloon actually, sir, the air that's coming out of my mouth right now, you can't see it. You can hear it, but you can't see the air coming out of my mouth until I blow up a balloon. And a balloon actually gives the air coming out of my mouth, it gives it structure, it gives it color, it, it, gives, us, it gives it boundaries. And if you, if you think about it, go with me on this, if you think about it, ritual religion, if we can use that term, it gives shape and structure and color and specificity to the spiritual feelings that we have. Um, it, it gives them boundaries. So, uh, for instance, I love God. I believe that God gave me everything that I have. He's blessed me with everything that I have. How do I show that? How do I demonstrate that? Well, one of the ways that I demonstrate that is through the giving of tithes and offerings. So I demonstrate that in a real way. And so it gives structure to these spiritual feelings that I have. It's the same way when you fall in love with, with, a, with a man or a woman. You fall in love. You want to give shape or structure to those abstract feelings that you have. And so you, you might buy a dozen roses. Or you might go on a date. Or, or you might write a poem or whatever. All of these things are ways of giving structure. And we had this talk when we, when we were introducing this concept of worldview. All these things are giving structure to the feelings that we have. The marriage ceremony to publicly and solemnly stand up in front of friends, family, and God and to publicly make the commitment and to exchange rings. These are all important aspects of making concrete in reality feelings that might just exist in the abstract. I hope, I hope that this is making sense. It's, it's a way of giving it structure. It's a way of giving it shape. A lot of questions are coming in from uh, marriages that aren't perfect, imagine. And I don't make light of that. I think if you're sitting here today saying, I don't really want to talk about the problems in my marriage, you've maybe misunderstood how imperfect marriage will be between a man and a woman who are broken in sin. So, uh, Peter... Uh, there's questions like, what about a relationship, a marriage relationship, where there's no intimacy or sexual compatibility? Uh, what, what words of hope do we have or response to that? Um, there are lots of reasons that sexual intimacy would fall out of a relationship. And uh, just to start with just cracking the door open just a little bit, if that is your story and you have questions about it, um, it's really important for you to go to somebody who can help you to uncover what's going on, whether it's emotional, sexual, past sexual trauma, a lack of trust, if it's biological. And you, what I would say to you, first off, is that you need to talk to a counselor 
who is comfortable asking those particular questions. The truth of the matter is, is that your sexuality is tied to your overall well-being. And your sex drive is tied to your biology. So if you're not feeling good, um, your sex drive can actually decrease. If you're in a relationship that you don't feel loved and nurtured and cared about, then your sex drive can actually go down. If you're in a relationship where you feel loved and it's really cool, I mean, just think of Thumper and Twitterpated for just a moment on Bambi. Man, you can have sex all day long if you're like that excited. Um, so you're, you're looking at... Um, thank you. You're looking at... Wait, Twitter and Bambi, this is my kind of show. So you're looking at a lot of reasons why that can happen. But here's, here's what I want for you to know in working with people like this. Don't stay in the state or the condition where you are hurt by this and do nothing. Because there's so much that's available to you and so much good conversation. Um, and you're so connected in so many ways that your story needs to be told and your story needs to be explored. And if there's a way to help that out, that way does actually exist. So having the courage to find the person that you can go and talk to um, is really uh, the first step that I would give to anybody who is asking really personal questions like that. Um, so Peter, we'll go back with you on this one. What are acceptable sexual expressions within marriage? Um, go ahead. Thank you. Yes. This is why I'm here. Mark didn't want to answer them. Uh, that's a fact. Notice Chad and I both put down the microphones as soon as it went to this. Uh, they're like, sit this. Yeah. Peter Buckland, sex doctor. Yes. <laughs> you can tell they need private help, can't you? <laughs> um, let me give you some broad principles. Um, of biblical interpretation. Principle number one, if the Bible expressly prohibits it, it's prohibited. If the Bible doesn't say anything about it, use caution. Use caution. Because it might not be valuable and it might not be beneficial. Because we have to fill in the gaps with some really important principles. Principle number one is the value of all human life. Principle number two is to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God so that I don't want to do anything that would be damaging or harmful to another person for my own personal gratification. Number three, I don't want to misuse um, things around me for my own selfish pleasure or my own selfish gain. So what I would say about what is acceptable and what is not acceptable is that there is a matter of conscience here. And if you are wondering, hey, you know, we want to, can I say some words? Like oral sex? Too late. So if, you, um, if you're wondering, the Bible has nothing to say about that, really. Um, and so what, what you're looking at is now, what do I do with that? What do I do with um, wanting to enjoy somebody in a way that the Bible does not prohibit, nor does the Bible um, condone? And what I want you to know is it's a matter of conscience. For some people, that is completely an inappropriate thing to do, based upon their own feelings that this feels dirty, or this, this has been I'm done in my past and it's not very pleasant to me, or I don't feel like I'm the right person um, in front of God when I do something like this. But if you don't have any of that, then throw some strawberries in a bathtub and whipped cream and enjoy yourself. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say don't do that. It's up to you. <laughs> Isn't that great, Mark? There's going to be a line at Walmart for whipped cream. <laughs> Amen. So what I would say to you again is this. Um, 
we need to be really good students of the Bible. And we really need to take a look at what does God say is prohibited. Adultery is prohibited. Sex with animals is prohibited. I'm doing something that is painful against somebody for my own sexual pleasure is prohibited. Doing something that is degrading is prohibited. And then the rest is a matter of conscience. And I think that you and I need to be very wise because we will distort anything for our own pleasure. And we're just, happen, we're just happening to talk about sexuality tonight. But we'll distort food and we'll distort sports and we'll distort money. Uh, we'll distort it for our own pleasure because we are people who grapple with the brokenness in our own lives. And so we want to be really biblical about this. But we also want to preserve freedom. But freedom is preserved with honoring and loving and caring and supporting and nurturing. It is not my freedom to do whatever I want to do because it pleases me. Okay, so I want you to paternally speak to our, our audience. What about the spouse who, what do we say to the spouse who has interest in a certain activity with their spouse, but their spouse is not, not comfortable with it and doesn't want to participate? It's a tension question that's come across the board many times. Yeah, I think one of the things that's important is that a husband and a wife are a team together. And as a team, there's a, a give and a take process. And again, what I want to do is say for questions like that, it might be um, really important for you to go to somebody who can help you to negotiate and figure that out. Uh, because it's really hard to sit up here on the stage and give really good counsel to people who need very specific <laughs> advice. So with that said, um, I think what we need to think about is that we are in this together. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said, don't withhold sexual responses to each other except for a time of prayer because then there will be temptation. And so you have to negotiate with the person that you're with what is an appropriate way for us to express this. And where there is difficulty, I think it's really good to bring in a third person. Um, there are reasons that people are uncomfortable. Would you agree with me? There are reasons. People would say, well, that doesn't make me feel good, or that reminds me of something else, or that's just not something that I think is appropriate. And to have the other person run over those is not a very good thing. But it's also not good to hold somebody hostage against something that is acceptable. And so getting together and trying to figure out how do you work that is important before the couple polarizes. And then they can't talk about it, and then they end up fighting, and they can't get at it. So finding a way to get at that and talk about that and see what's there is a really important thing to do. And I would say stop suffering in silence. If that's a really big issue, the marital couple itself cannot resolve that without outside help. And getting some kind of outside perspective to tell the story, to lay the information out, to find out what is the story behind the story. Because the story is just a reflection of what's going on. Uh, you may, as a spouse, find out all kinds of things that you really didn't know about before, about what's important and what's nurturing and what's loving and what's caring. Um, and as a result to that, you can actually begin to make some kind of progress or negotiate something that is mutually acceptable but might not be exactly what you started with. I also want to caution us, if I may, and then, guys, I'm going to throw it to either one of you. I'm going I'm to caution us from using Scripture to ask somebody to go a place they don't want to go. Guys, it's, yeah, wives are to submit to their husbands, but you're to love her like Christ loves the church. So we have to be really careful that we don't use the Bible as a bludgeon. And remember, we use this expression around here quite a bit, you can be right and not be righteous. 
And what's more important is loving your spouse and having that intimacy and affection rather than being right, getting what you want at the expense of another person's heart and or body. Michael Chad. Amen. I mean, it's important with Ephesians 5 to remember the, um, and this is just a basic principle when you're reading the Bible, uh, is pay attention to um, the way in which even the way the editors have separated out paragraphs, sometimes that actually confuses the meaning of text. For instance, Ephesians 5, uh, 22 says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That's all it says, the verse itself in the Greek. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. There's no verb there. And the reason is because the verb is taken from Ephesians 5, 21 which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And the reason that's important for us to recognize is because if you look in a lot of your Bibles, you'll notice that there's a section that ends at 521, and then you have a break, and then you have a heading that says marriage or husbands and wives or whatever, and it starts with wives submit to your husbands. And what you need to recognize is that's not where Paul started the statement. He started it with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. And if you back further up, submit to one another out of reverence for, for Christ is, I won't go into the nerdy grammar stuff, but it's related to, there's sort of four verbs that are related to the parent verb back in 418, I believe it is, that says uh, be filled with the Spirit. And then there's all these ways of building that out. And the fourth one is uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this idea of submission in the context of the relationship it must be understood within the context of mutual submission, that it's not just wives submit to your husbands, it's submit to one another, wives to your husbands, and then as you said, goes on to say, and here's what you're submitting to, a man who's going to love you as Christ loved the church, but if you back it up even further, we're talking about a spirit-filled life. And so there's just such a broader context um, mm-hmm. to that passage that would, that would, if you understand it in context, it's fairly clear that in this moment of, well, I want you to do this, but you don't want to do it, Ephesians 5 is not an appropriate, you know, that's not an appropriate time to use that text if, if you're using it as if to say, no, you should do it anyway. No, that's not what the, the specifics or the spirit of that text are communicating. So I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, I would just say, be very careful that you don't miss the forest for the trees. When it comes to scripture, we know very clearly the kind of persons it's trying to turn us into. And if you're doing anything in your marriage that um, does not exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and other virtues that we're aware of beyond that Galatians 5 passage, then you're not living in line with the spirit and, and, and you need to stop or change or whatever, you know, and get right before you decide what to do in the bed. Yeah, I, I can't imagine answering the question any better than Peter and Michael just have. Um, I, Give it a shot. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I love what Peter said about conscience. Um, and I think that's, that's the, the Holy Spirit component to it. Um, scripture just doesn't give us, outside of a few notable exceptions, it doesn't give us specific um, guidelines in a lot of areas that we might want specifics in. And so it does become a matter of conscience. It does become a matter of selflessness and listening to the Holy Spirit. And um, I think, you know, one, one of the points that, that we need to make up here too is we need to be very careful that we don't necessarily equate in a one-to-one fashion sex with intimacy or the physical action of sex and intimacy. Um, because that seems like a message that the world would want to send, um, that the only way to be intimate is through sexual intercourse. And uh, I, I've always found the Song of Songs to be a fascinating book. Um, going all the way back to my junior high days when I was 
bored and listening to my father drone on and on preaching a Sunday. And every church kid has done this. You have the pew Bible in front. You did it. Uh, you have the pew Bible in front of it and your dad or some other old guy is up there preaching about something that you don't know. You don't know what he's talking about. And, and so you just start to peruse the Bible and inevitably you'll end up in the song of songs. You're like, that's in the Bible. I can't believe that's in the Bible. Um, Song of Songs was so scandalous, in fact, that the rabbis said, the Jewish rabbis said that a Jewish boy was not to read the Song of Songs until after his bar mitzvah. So it was something reserved. It was PG-13, in other words. It was reserved Hebrew, only it's even for... More, it's even, you know, yeah. stronger, oh, shall no, it's, we say. It's better yeah. than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but what, what's interesting about the Song of Songs, though, is it's, it's not a book that's all about the physical expression of sex. Actually, it's a, it's, a, it's a book about intimacy. It's a book about touching. It's a book about uh, words. It, it's, it's, a, it's a book about sharing my innermost person with your innermost person. It's, it's, it's a book about that. It's not a sex book. But I think in our culture, we so closely associate intimacy with sex that now we have a culture where sex is a given. Sex is a given, but there's precious little intimacy ever felt or expressed. And so what I would, what I would really encourage you about or caution you about is, especially within our marriage relationships, make sure that it's, it's not just a conversation about the sexual act or about sexual activity. Um, make sure that it, it, it goes much deeper than that into personal intimacy, one with another, sharing myself with yourself. Yeah, I think uh, my professor in Bible college defined the Song of Solomon as much as we smile at each other over it. He said it's a book about romance. Yeah. It's a great definition of what romance is. It's being into each other more than just physically. So, And that yeah. also ought to tell you, I mean, it's one of 66 books. And people, get, people are sometimes surprised to find this in the Bible. Why? Turn on the radio, and what are over 90% of the songs on the radio about? They're about some form of love, oftentimes a very broken form of love, but they're about some sort of romance or some sort of love. Taylor Swift is physically incapable of writing or singing a song. It's not about relationships to some extent or another. Um, so why in the world would we be surprised when we open up the pages of Scripture to find a book dedicated to exploring this idea of romance and love. I find it completely appropriate to, to find this in Scripture. Questions are coming in, so I need to define terms. We did it Sunday, but uh, I'm not defining it because you didn't remember. I'm defining it so I can ask this next question. If fornication, by definition, is two people who are not in a marriage covenant performing sexually with each other, and adultery is someone who is in a covenant with person A, but is having sexual encounters with person B. By definition, once again, marriage is the fulcrum on which those definitions are, are brought about. With all of that being said, the foremost question we've received, Mr. Buckland, is what can a person who is single or divorced and a follower of Jesus do to meet their sexual needs within God's will? Oh, you set me up, didn't you? <laughs> yep. He's not as dumb as he looks. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm assuming this is the masturbation question. Or it's one of them. Of it. That's part of it. it. All right. Well, let me... I've been thinking about that one. So, 
let me uh, let me just kind of open open up some things with I want to give it, you, a, you a preamble that is some some good information that I think is really important for us as we consider um, this entire topic. Number one, your brain wants pleasure. If there is any kind of um, suffering, if there's any kind of discomfort that you have in any area of your life, your brain is going to want to get rid of that and flood your body with chemicals so you feel good. We are all addicted to pleasure. That's what we want. And we can talk about it in the sexual area, but we, we also want our sports team to win, right? And we want to get that raise because we feel really good and really euphoric. You are designed by God to experience pleasure. Number two, every desire that you have points to the end when God will fulfill every single one of them. You are made to have desires. You are made to have desires in relationship. You are made to have desires in creation, to create and make something. You are made to have desires to be recognized. You are made to have sexual desires. You are made to have desires that you will be well cared for. But every single desire points to the time when you will be with God. And so you know, and I know, that if sexual desires are not met, then we will find a way to try to meet those desires within a culture that says do whatever you want to do. Next thing that I would tell you is we do a very, very bad job as a culture trying to help people navigate these waters. So I want to give you one, a, a solution up front about desires. Most marriage therapists, Christian marriage therapists, who talk about sexuality will say that your sexual desires, your fantasies, your um, sexual activity points to trying to meet a need. And so if you are lonely and you can flood your body with chemicals and it can, your body can feel really good, you can flood your body with a number of chemicals. You can use alcohol, you can use um, some kind of injective substances, you can take some kind of pills, you can use sex. Sex in that um, arena is taken out of its interrelational context and is used to satisfy a need that it was not designed to satisfy. When you add pornography to that need or pornographic images or some way that we evaluate another human being for our pleasure, you remove it another step further from that. A danger for you, which I don't know if you know this, so I'm just gonna pretend like you're my children and um, just give it to you. Whatever you focus on sexually becomes what you're interested in because your body doesn't know the difference biologically between sex with a human and self-pleasing activities, watching images or having an image on your screen. It's all sex to your body. I don't know if you know that. So, so for people who focus on a particular kind of image or a particular kind of person, that person becomes the image or the person that they want to satisfy themselves. And so they objectify the person for their own personal pleasure, which becomes sinful. Remember, we distort everything if we can. And we actually do it to ourselves because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says sex is a sin that we sin against our bodies. What you might not know is you sin in your own biology. Now, sin can be done against you, which is not really what we're talking about right now, but you can actually make your situation worse by self-pleasing activities, by viewing pornographic images or images that are sexually pleasing to you, putting those together because it burns in your brain and it becomes your sexual norm. And we are fed a constant diet of that. Is it any wonder that America is out of control sexually? 
So what's a person supposed to do in this crazy culture? Because your needs point to wanting to have a closer, more intimate relationship, which nobody will ever take away from us. That's a given. Secondly, there are sexual needs, and those sexual needs are stoked, or the sexual drive is stoked. Um, Another thing right before I, I make a comment about that is there's nothing wrong with sexual desires. The Bible talks about sexual behaviors. So let me just ask you this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. I went and looked it up before I got up here tonight. In every way as we are. Which means, I don't mean every specific way because there wasn't an internet and there wasn't a television, but Jesus was tempted sexually in every way. So when you feel your desire um, rise, whether you are married or you are single, there, there can be degrees of intensity. There's a desire to be known. There's a desire to connect. There's a desire to enjoy. There's a desire for some kind of sexual pleasure if you've experienced that. You, you all know that those desires are there. You need to remember that those desires point to the culmination where God embraces us in the end and he meets every single one of those desires fully. And that's a normal thing for us to feel broken and want those desires. The question is, is how are you going to meet those desires? So, um, one of the things that I would say to you, let me just kind of open up the masturbation thing, is the Bible doesn't really say anything about masturbation. So you know what Peter Buckland interpretation rule number one is. Be careful. Be careful. Is masturbation a sin? Yes, it is sometimes. Is masturbation a sin? No, it's not at other times. Oh, that's really helpful. So let me tell you some things that I have found to be helpful. I work with college students. So go figure out which side they feel like the issue is on. When you are a teenager, especially as guys, your body is producing a tremendous amount of sperm. That sperm motivates you sexually. And there is relief and release and there is a sense of, I don't have sexual tension, when there is a release of that sperm. God created a mechanism at night in order to let that go. He also created the option for you um, that we all know that we could take of self-pleasing activities or masturbation. The question is, is when does that option become wrong? And so let me give you some ideas for that. Number one, I do want to say, please don't leave here and say that Peter Buckland believes that you can masturbate your brains out. (laughs) Thank you, you're all there. Because I don't believe that, and that's not biblical. Because I deal with people who masturbate three times a day. And they are not healthy, and they are not happy. So let me give you some things. When masturbation is used as a substitute for intimacy, it's wrong. Because people withdraw from human contact when they feel guilty, especially if they're doing porn, and they will not make really good friends with people because they know that they have to say what's actually going on. So when masturbation is a substitute for intimacy, it's wrong. Number two, if you are married and masturbation becomes a substitute for relational covenantal sex with your spouse, it is wrong. Because it is, it is not supposed to do that. It is supposed to be, um, uh, your covenantal relationship is a place where all of that is to be expressed and you are not to use a self-pleasing activity in order to substitute for that. Number three, when it becomes addictive, and that is that I will do this all the time whenever I want to, to meet my needs. Now, I, I know that in an audience this size, some of you have struggled with this area. So I just want you to think about this. When somebody masturbates, it opens the door for masturbation again more rapidly. And so I just tell people you have to push your masturbation far apart from each other because it will creep in and it will take over your life because your brain is addicted to what? 
pleasure. Now, Christians abuse sex regularly because we believe we can hide it. You can't hide alcoholism and you can't hide drug use, but you can hide sex for a very long time. So this is, this is our issue. This is one of the reasons that we do this. We, we hide it, we feel bad, we act like things aren't going on, and then it just explodes and erupts somewhere because our sexual behavior is an indication of need. And when we don't get that need met, then we have some trouble. So uh, masturbation becomes wrong on those elements. What do you do if you're broken hearted and you long for intimacy and you want a relationship with somebody? And you're not necessarily particularly interested that um, it, would, it would have to be sexual all the time. Well, this is where we do a really bad job. We do not have what I would call spiritual friendships. We do not have relationships with other people that meet those longings, those intimate needs in a non-sexual way. But throughout the history of the church, that has been the way that people have been connected. We live in a disconnected society. And if you're white, middle class, you're the most disconnected of any ethnic group in the United States. So look around the room. You're all lonely and disconnected, according to the research. If you're Hispanic, you're connected. If you're Asian, you're connected. If you're black, you're connected. Because you know, you know how to form extended family relationships. But white people, if I could just use that as our cultural group, are the most disconnected of all. Isn't that interesting? Which means we are the most vulnerable to misusing sex of all for our own personal reasons. So what I would say to you is that you need to be in a relationship where you can be honest. Number two, you need to recognize the addictive qualities of sex and try to not use sex as much as possible in order to substitute for real human relationships. Number three, I want to talk to the guys in here real quick and then I'll be quiet and you can do a follow-up. I don't know if you know this, but your body is wired to um, really frustrate you with this. You can all smile and go, uh-huh, yeah, it is. What, what you might not know is that your body every night checks itself um, for its own um, sexual ability. So you will have three erections every night, and in the morning you'll probably wake up with one. Sorry, ladies, to give that up. What happens is that your bladder gets full and you wake up sexually sensitive in the morning because it puts pressure on the prostate and it sort of is a way that we become sexualized. If you're an adolescent boy, you can sit down in math and have an erection because it just happens with the pressure that's located there. Our culture says, do what you want. Do what you want, do what you want, do what you want, do what you want. Christ comes along and says, and I appreciated what um, Chad said, is that um, we believe in the sanctity and the holiness of sex. And your body is actually wired to say, let me feel good, let me feel good, let me feel good. And you need help if that has gotten out of control. I mean, we've, one of our last questions is where do we send people for that? But I do want you to know that all the research says that you cannot deal with this on your own. And this is a natural pressure that men feel. Women have kind of the romance side, which I don't know if we want to get into that tonight. But from a standpoint of masturbation, men will masturbate more than women because our body builds up pressure and wants to be released. So here's, here's the last thing that I want to say. If you can push your masturbation practices far apart and you can masturbate without undressing another person in front of you, that is, you masturbate for relief because everywhere you look, you see people that you're taking their clothes off. I can just talk to the people in here, the guys in here. If you masturbate for that because you can't deal with it anymore and you don't get any relief, 
um, by any kind of natural biological processes where you're urinating out the extra sperm or you're having night nocturnal emissions, then masturbation itself becomes a vehicle by which a lot of guys say, I finally got some relief. But the problem is that if you masturbate, you're going to want to do it again the next day or the next day or the next day, and it becomes problematic. So what I would say is, if I could just talk to everybody just like you're my kid, be really careful in what you do. Recognize your own weakness, and you have to decide if this is going to be acceptable for you or not. I'm going to jump to the next largest group of questions because it's significant. And I want to thank this group of believers because the way these questions were posed to us was respectful. It was God-honoring, and I'm grateful. It would have been really easy to jump on the same-sex attraction issue and ride it around the room like we're superior, and we didn't get one of those. So God bless you. Uh, that, it's a pleasure processing these questions. Uh, Chad, I'd like to start with you and Michael on this one. <clears throat> Is marriage simply and only a man and a woman? Well, I mean, yes. Uh, scripture is pretty clear on, um, on this point. That, you know, one of, one of the difficulties that we have on this issue is that it has become hyper-politicized. And, um, and it's difficult to have a reasonable discussion about this on, on one side or the other because of the, the culture wars that are currently going on. So I do appreciate the, the respectful tone. Um, because we need, we need to adopt a pastoral orientation towards this issue Absolutely. instead of a political orientation to this issue. And sometimes that's hard for us to, that's hard for us to navigate. Um, and so we want to pop off on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever and, and go off on some rant. And it's not particularly God-honoring, and it's, not, it's certainly not pastoral. But I will say, if you're asking about the biblical perspective, the biblical perspective is is pretty straightforward. Um, and, and there's more and more even gay commentators who will acknowledge the fact that, biblically speaking, um, marriage is an institution between a man and a woman. And both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, there is, um, there is a, uh, a line drawn there where um, acting out homosexual... Um, uh, desires, the homosexual act, is uh, forbidden. And it's, it's a manifestation of brokenness, one of many manifestations of brokenness in the sexual realm. As a culture, we've, we've tended just to zero in on that, which I think is unfortunate, um, because there's other manifestations of sexual brokenness swirling all around us. Um, but it is, uh, whether, whether you're talking Romans or Corinthians or some other places, um, it is a manifestation of brokenness in our sexual desires. Yeah, I'll try to um, just build on that with a few brief points. Uh, some make saying the similar things in other ways, and others um, I said a couple other things. One is, as Chad said, I just want to echo what he said. The texts are clear. There's not a whole lot of texts that speak about homosexuality, but the first question we should ask is the one he answered, which is, what do the texts say? And in Romans 1, and in 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1, and in Leviticus 18, and I think it's in, verse, and in chapter 20, there are verses in each of those chapters that speak about homosexual behavior, and they all say that this is outside of God's will. This is not um, an, a, an action that is blessed by God or permissible by God for those who, who would do his will. 
Sometimes, though, you'll hear people say, yeah, well, there's only five texts, so it can't be that big of an issue. And to that, I want to say, well, if there's five texts, really all we need is one in order to establish something. If, if, one, if we have one text that's clear, then that's enough for us to know on any given issue what's right and wrong. But I also want to build on something you said earlier, Mark, with regard to the two adults having sex. Um, the Bible never explicitly condemns this, and you answered this, but I just want to echo it in a way. The word that the Bible uses for sexual immorality or fornication or, or any sort of the catch-all term is the term, is the Greek word is porneia, and you can see porn right there in it. It's not referring to pornography. Porneia is a reference to sexual morality or sexual sin. The word itself is not self-defining. And it only makes sense, as Mark said, when you, com- when you read it in light of all that the Bible positively says about sex, which is that it belongs within the context of a man-woman marriage. So since uh, the Bible gives us a good theology of marriage, porneia then defines everything outside of that. And similarly, I used to say a lot of times um, to groups of Christians, there's only five texts on homosexuality, so yeah, they say what they say and we shouldn't deny it, but, but don't act like it's a bigger deal than it is. And there's some truth in that, but it's dangerous because really every text about marriage is a text about all forms of sexual sin. Does that make sense? You following what I'm saying? So that's enough on the biblical side. A couple other points I want to make are, one, I've I've heard this analogy and I've always found it helpful. Imagine that you're holding a stack of plates, right? Uh, Porcelain or glass plates, dinner plates, and you drop that stack of plates. Every single plate that you drop is going to break. And no two of those plates are going to break in precisely the same way. Each one of us is one of those plates, And we're all broken, but we're broken in different ways. And the brokenness of sin manifests itself differently in my life than it does in your life and your life and your life. And so when we talk about homosexuality as a sin, or homosexual behavior as a sin, what we're speaking to is the fact that one of the ways that the brokenness of sin influences certain people is that they find themselves attracted to members of the same sex. So in that sense, those of us who were broken in different ways should never in any, in, it just it makes no actual sense for us to act as if another person's, the, the, the structure, the way in which their, their plate is shattered is so much worse than the way in which our plate is shattered. That's foolishness. So let's all acknowledge that we're broken plates on this, right? And the last thing I'll say, and it's been implicit in some of what we said, but I'll make sure that we're very clear about this, is that the Bible speaks about homosexual behavior as being sinful as being like you are breaking a law. So if you are a person that finds yourself attracted to members of the same sex, if you, when you go to bed at night, if you've fought, Peter said something um, when we were doing a Q&A last week that I want to I apply in this situation. I want to tell you if this is an appropriate application. If you go to bed at night and you have not acted out this desire and you have done your best to not lust after, if you're a man, not lust after a man, or if you're a woman, not lust after a woman, if you've done your best by the power of the Spirit to be faithful in this regard, you don't need to go to bed feeling guilty because you're still attracted to men if you're a man that's, that's right. or a woman, women if you're a woman. You, you've done nothing wrong, right? You've not, you've not like broken a law and God's not mad at you for the day. The tragedy of all of our lives is that we will always be to some extent broken, even though we can't experience redemption. Our brokenness is not going to go away entirely this side of heaven. But I may be an envious person or a gluttonous person, and I may all day long have fought against comparing myself with other people and either thinking I'm better or thinking I'm worse. If I fought that, if I didn't give in to that, then I'm not guilty at the end of the day just because those temptations came to my mind. If I have been faithful in fighting against those sins, I can go to bed happy in the Lord that I've done everything I could today to be faithful to Him. 
So don't, I don't want you to feel unnecessary guilt feelings. Is that an appropriate application of a statement you made last week? That's important for us to recognize that um, you don't walk around, with, walk around with like an extra black cloud of guilt if you are a person who is navigating same-sex attraction as someone who's trying to follow Jesus. That's not something that you should feel just because you have those feelings or thoughts or desires or temptations. Uh, one of the subsequent questions that's coming in is... Um, Heterosexuals get the, the hall pass. Polygamy is rampant in the Old Testament, yet it's a man and a woman. Yeah. And so how do we address it to the critics who will come back and say, there you go, the heterosexuals get it all, and the homosexual community who have those desires, their celibacy is their only option. Mm-hmm. So what do we say about the polygamy issue foremost? Very simply, with the polygamy issue... Well, let's to, uh, not to, please don't be insulted, define polygamy... Right, yeah, polygamy is a person who's married to multiple people. So if I'm, a, if I'm a male, then polygamy means I'm married to multiple women. Or I don't know of any cases of the opposite, but technically polygamy could be a woman married to multiple men. So typically, though, it's men married to multiple women. And you do find it in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is you never find like a very clear, you can't point to a particular verse in the Bible that says polygamy's wrong. So sometimes people say, see, it must be okay. Two important principles to keep in mind. One is that God's will uh, was revealed over time, was unfolded over time. And so you can't look at an Old Testament text and, get, uh, and just think that that gives us a snapshot of God's perfect will every time. You have to look at the entire biblical witness on an issue. And uh, when you look at the Bible, what you have is at the start, marriage between Adam and Eve is one man and one woman. And that's the only thing you have until sin enters the world. And then you have sin entering the world, and there are all sorts of ways in which we screw things up. And so you have this polygamy um, in the Old Testament, um, and as you move towards the New Testament, as you move towards Christ, and then in the church, you only have marriage being defined as one man plus one woman. Otherwise, Jesus' statements about adultery and lust don't make any sense. So you have to take Scripture over time. The second thing I'll say is, even in the Old Testament, Uh, what you never find is polygamy being something that God blesses. It always leads to chaos. It always leads to pain. It never leads to good things. And so even in the the, the, less clear portion of Scripture, the point, if you're looking at it narratively, if you're letting the narrative teach you as a whole, the narrative is teaching you that this is not an institution, this is not a form of sexual expression that has God's blessing on it. So within the text themselves, it's not blessed. And in the wide scope of things, it becomes very clear when you look at the Bible as a whole that this is not a part of God's design. So that's a couple things on that. And I'll let you guys speak to the other part of it, which is heterosexuals get to have all the fun, which is an important thing because in our culture, that's the way we approach it a lot of times. Oh, if you're straight, do what you want. But if you're gay, you can't do anything. That is not a biblical statement to, to the heterosexual person. And I think we probably clarified that to some extent, but you guys can clarify it further if you feel it needs to be. Yeah, I mean, on the... On the polygamy issue, I would actually turn that around a little bit, and, and, and I would say that, first of all, you can never, like you say, you can never find a happy household in the Old Testament, a happy polygamous household. Um, I mean, Solomon had, like, what, how many wives and concubines? Dude was miserable. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I would make the case that when you find polygamy in the Old Testament, this was a concession to culture. In other words, it's, it's something that God's people have always had the bad habit of doing. Culture is moving in one direction. We see culture moving in this direction. And so we will um, accommodate that movement to culture. 
And in the ancient world, it was common for the patriarch of a community to take for himself multiple lives to secure his, his hierarchical line. And, to, you know, there are multiple economic and cultural factors for that. And we see God's people accommodating that cultural movement. And, and I, would, I, would make the same case, I would make the case that the same sort of dilemma faces the church today as we see culture moving in a certain direction. And again, we don't want to engage in culture wars. No one wins in a culture war. Uh, but we do have to ask the question, are we simply accommodating a culture that is moving in a per- particular direction? Um, or uh, will, we, um, will we celebrate the sanctity of, of, of marriage? And I think it is interesting when you... I put, obviously, a great deal of stock, a great deal of credence into what Jesus says about marriage. And when, every time that Jesus talks about marriage, he talks about marriage as a sacred bond, a sacred union, man to a woman um, in the New Testament. One of the things that I, I'd like to say, just to get it out of my head, is the, legal, the legality of anything does not make it okay. And we in Americans, I think we, can, we confuse that. We think, well, if they pass a law and make it okay, it's okay. No, we should be more gracious and speaking to people about the damage that all sexual sin, heterosexual or homosexual, does to every one of us. My fear is in our culture, and Michael, you said it well, it's my heart's fear, is that if you're straight, then just go have all the fun you want and there's no damage being done to you. That's a lie. That's, That's a huge lie. And when it becomes politicized, then once again, we bludgeon people with the truth of God, which is a dangerous game to play. Uh, The biggest question was, what about people frustrated sexually? Peter, I think you were amazing in your answer, and I hope every one of us will listen to this recording over and over and process the multiple layers that you laid out there. Second question, I appreciate the brevity of it, was what do we do as Christians? How do we offer grace to the same-sex attracted person? But I want to jump because time's going to force us to. I want to jump to where we need to end. And where's, how does the gospel play a role in sexual sin? Questions like, is sexual sin a salvation issue? What do I do? Uh, what about my addiction? How do I overcome that? So, Peter, I'd like you to, to begin. And what hope is there for someone who has sinned sexually, is tempted sexually, uh, and wants to live out God's will through all that? Okay. And I got eight minutes. Good. Um, here's what I want to say. I want to speak to you as an elder first. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. Amen. Um, we hand out and hold our hands open with the hospitality of God. There is no better place for a person to be than with God's people. Amen? It doesn't matter. It does not matter what your history is. It does not matter what you are dealing with. There, there should be, and we want this church to be that, there should be no better place to be than with another Christian person who loves Jesus. And if you love Jesus and you're struggling with one of these, then you have found your home. Because we are all struggling with something. And while there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of pain associated with the sexuality that we have as human beings, you are at home with God's people as a Christian struggling with this. So the very first thing that I want you to think about is your home. Your home. You might not be healed but you are home. Secondly, um, we want for this congregation to be the place where we can deal with these real issues. So here are some things for you. Number one, there is no sin that scares God. There is no sin that he cannot do something with redemptively. 
Are there sins that people will not fully recover from? Yes. But it does not mean that they will not experience an abundance of God's provision and love and grace in their lives. It means that they will continue to struggle some within their lives. And remember what your brain is addicted to. Pleasure. And struggle is not pleasure. So you can actually convince yourself God hates you or that people don't like you because you are still struggling. And how long have you been struggling? You will struggle all of your life about something. And so we need to get over ourselves and we need to embrace how huge and magnificent and wonderful grace is. And that means that God is not scared of you and he will pull you to himself and he will take you in whatever condition you are in and he will do something amazing in your life. Does it mean that he will completely take away what hurts you? No, because he's not as concerned about that. His grace, his presence, his power is so big that he can still work through you even if you struggle with something. Do we believe that or don't we believe that? Amen. Amen. Is this going to be the place where we live that out or is this not going to be the place where we live that out? Is this a place where hope is going to be supreme and that we're going to help each other to move forward or not? So, here are some things for you. Number one, you cannot deal with sexual issues alone. Period. Because we are, we are entrapped in our own sexuality. And if our own sexuality has betrayed us in some way, through addictive processes, through abuse, or through some kind of practice, we do not have the ability to stand outside of ourselves and get the strength and the energy we need. You are broken and you are hurting. And what you need is somebody outside of you to give you what you need because you don't have it. So the first place you do is that you find a fellowship with another person, either a counselor or a group or somebody that you can share your story with because you know the value of just saying what needs to be said. So you find the person that will not reject you because you are human and that you, you have shame and you have issues that you want to deal with because the acceptance of that person is a mirror image of the hospitality of God. The reason that you are welcome here is because we want to splash God all over you. We want you to see that we are not afraid that people deal with these issues. And we can have conversations about these things. And we can hold open the hospitality of God because God energizes the church from without. The world rips power from us. The world hurts us, but God is constantly putting energy through, through the person of the Holy Spirit. And you need to experience that. You cannot get that on your own. So if you're suffering in silence, you will continue to do so. Only when you open that up to another person first and you begin to experience the linking with God, which you will not get right away if you're really dealing with this. You have to experience it with a human first. You can get glimpses of it if you come to worship, but it doesn't hold. You must be in a relationship with somebody who loves you no matter how badly you behave. Sometimes that can't be your spouse because you behave badly against your spouse. Sometimes it can't be your kids. It has to be somebody who doesn't need you. It has to be somebody who can love you and care about you. And so we do have some groups here, uh, Redemption Recovery and Healing Hearts, and relationships here where that is their design. Their design is to love you no matter how bad you are. Their design is to be the reflection of the hospitality of God so that you can say, yeah, I, I have a hard time saying this, but this is who I am. And those guys and those ladies will look at you and they will say, remember your home, your home. So kick off your shoes and tell us the rest of the story. Because the only way you're going to get better is for you to know that we love you. And so you've got to get connected with something like that. Um, the last thing that I would say is that God restores us back 
to an, an amazing place. I want to give you a verse of scripture that I use with sexually traumatized people. It's Joel chapter 2, verse 25. It is a judgment passage, a horrible, horrible judgment passage. Joel chapter 2, verse 25. And God says that I'm going to send judgment on you like locusts. And that locust wave is going to come wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. It's going to eat all the green and you're going to get nothing left. But in the end, this is what he says, Joel chapter 2, verse 25. The reason I use it is not because people have, have just kind of said, yeah, please, I'd like to be devastated sexually. It's because of the image of being devastated. It feels like every green is gone and, and I have nothing left and God doesn't love me and the church doesn't love me and nobody cares about me and all I have is barrenness in my soul. And this is what God says. I, God, will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. My locusts that I send to you. I love to give this to prisoners when I go to jail. Not that I'm in jail, but when I go to jail. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. And I will testify to this. I have seen him do this. I have seen him give people more than they would have had if they didn't have that problem. This is the hope. God is not scared. God has all the power. God has all the ability. God can still work with you even though you still struggle. And he says to this, I, God, sign Jehovah, hereby promise to give you more than you have lost. Isn't that crazy? That's the crazy God we serve. But you have to be willing to meet him, to go through the process, to claim that promise. You cannot do it if you stay silent. You can only do it in community. There are some problems that you can never get over by yourself because it mirrors the, the fellowship of God himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you confess a sexual sin and you confess it to somebody who loves you, you are practicing the depth of fellowship, hospitality, and self-revealingness that God himself does without sin. Isn't that amazing? You cannot do it on your own. And so God promises you, I, I will repay you for what Satan has done to you. I will repay you for what you have done to you. I will even repay you for what somebody else has done to you. I will repay you for what the American culture has done to you. I will repay you. I will repay you. I will repay you. I will repay you. And when it is done, you will be in better shape than what you would have been otherwise. That is the promise of God. And that, that is what this ministry for this church is about, is that you will be in better shape. I don't know how it's going to all happen. You will be in better shape when it is done than when you started. And I have names of people that that is true for. When you exit this room tonight, there's a table out there from Haven Counseling. I'm fully aware in our culture that most people turn to counseling when they've been rock bottom or they're forced to. And that's just wrong. Peter, your words resonate in my heart. It's every sin in my life. I'm going to take care of it. I'm horrible at that. I jumped into the pool. What makes me think I can crawl out? And I love the encouragement tonight. There's a bunch of answers to the questions. We gave you a reference sheet back there of ministries that are provided here. This isn't the promotional tour we're on. There are people that asked all day Sunday. There was a frustration in the room because I presented the case, but I didn't give the solution. Tonight's the discussion about the solution. It's what do we say to someone we love that has same-sex attraction? What grace can we offer them? What word do we have in a world that says no marriage is what the state of whatever decides it is? How are we going to respond to that with the balance of grace and truth? <clears throat> but if you can't 
and you, you admit you can't do this on your own, then we're encouraging, take advantage of home with counselors and people that will love you and Stephen's ministers, people that will sit down with you and, and walk the path with you. It'll be ugly and awkward and unbecoming. But at the end of the day, would you rather look good or be right? And I think we all know the answer to that. Peter, uh, Maggie Shade gave me this this week, and I kind of wondered why she gave it to me. Micah 7, 8, and 9. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. Until he pleads my case and upholds my cause, he will bring me into the light, and I will see his righteousness. And for all of us that have ripping scars across our bodies for sexual sin, God is bigger and God is better and his love wins. So let's fall into his love and understand what real intimacy truly is. I want to pray and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for hope. Thank you for in the middle of a passage that says you're coming in wrath, that your love will win. Thank you for a hope that the discipline that you bring into our lives may be hard and scary and it blows our ego and our pride away. But at the end of it, I love the repetition. You will repay, you will repay, you will repay. God, there's some hard conversations coming our ways, all of us. We have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, I need to be honest about who I am and what I've made of myself. We're going to encounter people, Lord, and you know that there are people in our hearts right now who are living in sin, and yet our desire for them is to free themselves from the poison and walk into new life. May we be vessels of your love and your mercy and your truth. God, use us, refine us, and make us the kind of people that can take the message of Jesus everywhere. We love you. God, I'm appreciative of these three men that study and come and and make themselves vulnerable in this stage by answering hard questions that not everyone's going to agree with, but they share it with hope and with love and with study. And I pray that you will discern all these things for us, lead us on the right path, and bless each and every person here. And God, I really pray for that you will bless each person who will listen to this recording and that they will understand, and they will seek the truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming out tonight. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.